The views expressed in this program are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the views of 94.9 CHRW. This is a dollar. One dollar equals one fish. Wow. Well, you ask me what money is, right? Right. Right. Well, money is what you get when you work. Remember the time the hydraulic fluid leads you to the moon pool? Slime and water. Right. Right. And what'd you do? You helped fix the leak. That's work. Now, say for that work you get money, and the money you get is $10. Okay. Now, if $1 equals one fish, how many fish does $10 equal? Ten. Right. Yeah. So, so say you want five fish. How many, how many dollars do you need to get five fish? Don't need money. I go get fish. <laughs> yeah, well, say you can't leave Sequest to get fish. Lucas gives me fish. Yeah, well, say I won't give you fish unless you give me money. Why? Oh, because that's the way the world works, Darwin. No money, no fish? Yeah. Yeah, right, exactly. That sucks. Darwin. Darwin! Good morning, London. It's Thursday, February 13th, 2014. I'm Bob Metz. And I'm Robert Vaughn. And this is Just Right on CHRW 94.9 FM. Where we will be with you from now until noon. I don't know, right wing. It's Just Right. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be and welcome to our show today, where I'm kind of stuck home a little bit with the tail end of a flu here. I didn't want to bring it back into the station with me, so Robert and I decided to co-host the show this way this week. How you doing there, Robert? How you doing, Bob? That's the question. You've got the I, flu. I've got the flu. I'm just sort of on the tail end. I'm, fortunately, it's not affecting my voice today, so I should be okay for most of this. Well, you sound good from my end. Excellent. Well, today on the show, I know for my part, in the second half of the show, I want to talk about all of these white elephants that the city seems to be getting into. It's just not normal. Uh, speaking of the normal school, which is one of the things we want to t- look at, also the proposed celebration center, and some realities about the Budweiser Center that people do not seem to be so aware of. And, of course, in the first half of the show, I know you're going to be looking at uh, our health care system, <laughs> if yes. I can call it that. And I understand you're going to be educating us a little bit on the idea of Bitcoin, which I'm kind of in the dark about in some regards. Um, well, I can try to educate somebody on it because uh, I'm still pretty ignorant of, of it myself, I have to admit. But um, Yeah, we get a lot of questions on this, and it's not the clearest thing in the world. No, and um, even if you research it, it's still not the clearest thing in the world. I don't know if you've heard that, the, of course, the federal government has just brought down a budget um, quite conveniently in the middle of the Sochi Olympics, so not many people may have heard about it, but they've just released it, and uh, there's a little item in that document that might go unnoticed, but many listening to this show should take note of it because it has to do specifically with Bitcoin and other online currencies. It reads as follows, the, the appropriate segment, quote, It's important to continually improve Canada's regime to address emerging risks including virtual currencies such as Bitcoin, that threaten Canada's international leadership in the fight against money laundering and terrorist financing, unquote. So 
Exactly what measures the government plans to take aren't clear at the moment, as the um, legislative amendments have yet to be tabled, but two things to me are clear. The government has targeted Bitcoin for control, and two, the future of the fledging currency is in doubt in this country, as it has been put in doubt in many other countries. Now, a little background for those who don't use Bitcoin or aren't familiar with it, like yourself, Bob, and I don't use it, uh, I have to acknowledge that I was only marginally aware of Bitcoin as my, my son had mined two coins a couple of years ago. Now, I'll tell you what that mining means. Mm, mining, that's interesting. Yes, it's, it's a little strange, actually. Clever, but strange. Even after researching Bitcoin for this show, I have to admit I still find it complex. And I don't know everything there is know about the subject, and that may be one of its failings, actually. It's a, an extremely complicated currency to understand for anyone who is not computer savvy. Bit of background, Bitcoin was introduced as open source software in 2009 by an anonymous person or persons, possibly in Japan, maybe not, going by the handle Satoshi Nakamoto. A person can either buy Bitcoins using regular fiat currencies like the Canadian dollar or any other fiat currency, over exchanges or by mining. In other words, allowing the software that somebody's downloaded on their computer to use a person's own graphics processor to facilitate the processing of Bitcoin transactions and thereby, thereby accumulate Bitcoins in payment themselves. Now, as an aside, while this may have been a good way to generate Bitcoins a couple of years ago, it no longer is. It's been suggested that the cost of the electricity to run your computer costs you more than any amount of Bitcoins you will receive as compensation for mining. So why anybody would want to do that, I don't know. Now, a Bitcoin is virtual. It doesn't exist. You'll see that little symbol there with a B with a couple of lines through it. It doesn't exist as a physical coin. It's totally virtual and is stored in an encrypted virtual wallet, either on a person's personal computer or on a remote server, like in the cloud, as they speak. It has no intrinsic value, not like gold or silver or copper and is only a very small percentage of businesses, either brick-and-mortar or online, which accept it in payment, though that's growing. Its value in relation to other currencies has fluctuated wildly over the years, changing as much as thousands of percent in value in just one year. This time last year, one Bitcoin was worth about 50 bucks. Today, one Bitcoin is worth about $712 Canadian after reaching a high of almost $1,200 just this past November. Now, to illustrate just how volatile this new currency is in relation to other currencies, this is from the BBC uh, four days ago. Quote, One of the largest Bitcoin exchanges, MTGOX, said it has halted trading or transfers to external Bitcoin addresses on Friday, that's last Friday, after detecting, quote, unusual activity. It said an investigation had revealed it was possible for thieves to fool the transaction process so that double the correct amount of bitcoins would be sent. Bitcoins fell from 700 US to 540 dollars US overnight. On a quote. Wow. So, after thinking about Bitcoin for the past few days as someone unfamiliar with it, I've I've come to believe that it has less value to me personally than my collection of Canadian tire money. So. <laughs> Given that information, but what do you think of Bitcoin so far? I haven't got a thought about it. It sounds like a bit con to me. A bit con, hey? Yeah. Uh, um, 
who's making money on this? Obviously, if something's fluctuating, there's, there is value exchanging hands somewhere, isn't there? Uh, or does yes. everything go up and everything go down and everybody, that doesn't make sense. Somebody, sounds like somebody's making a, a killing here. Well, in any transaction, it's a win-win situation. If I gave you a dollar bill, a fiat currency, for something that you value less than a dollar, I win because I get that, that thing, and you win because you get the dollar. Yeah, so, but my dollar doesn't fluctuate between today and tomorrow where it might be worth 50 cents or 700 bucks, right? <laughs> no, that variability is quite the concern, I must say, but... Um, as far as who benefited from this, the so-called creator, uh, Satoshi Nakamoto, uh, not his real name, or their real names, is estimated to have had built uh, themselves a nest egg of a million bitcoins, in other words, about a billion dollars. And nobody knows where they are, who they are, so that's up in the air. Talk, you know, the words Ponzi scheme, or <laughs> I don't know, come to mind, but... Yeah, sounds like it. Yeah, well, they made a killing, if, if that is, in fact, the case. Now, the allure to many is its pseudo-anonymous uh, anonymous nature. But then again, if I go to Canadian Tire and I buy a fishing rod with cash or even use my Canadian Tire money, I've done so anonymously. I would even say that I have done so with more anonymity than a Bitcoin user, since not all Bitcoin transactions, from what I can tell, again, I'm not an expert on this, are completely anonymous. Another apparent benefit of Bitcoin is that it's an electronic transfer, which is either free or very close to free, costing only the equivalent of pennies per transaction, or Satoshis, if you prefer, since a fraction of a Bitcoin is called a Satoshi. But so what? I'm risking using a currency that fluctuates wildly in value to save a couple of dollars in bank wire transfer fees or PayPal percentage points? To each his own, I suppose, but I prefer the security of being able to have a third party such as PayPal, a credit card company, or my bank being able to charge back a fraudulent transaction or at least record it for my protection as a consumer than to do a transaction in Bitcoin or any other virtual currency online without the ability to redress a wrong. Say, for example, if my merchandise is not received or is faulty. Mind you, there's always ways to have third-party intervention in Bitcoin transactions, from what I understand, to hold payment until receipt of goods. Um, but with my Visa or my Amex, I have a lot more protection, and I'm willing to pay for it. But again, as I say, to each his own. People, especially self-ascribed anarchists, are flocking to Bitcoin as a way to circumvent the banks, their way of so-called sticking it to the man. Well, I say good for them. I don't mind, and I wish them luck. But banking serves a value to me, and I'm willing to pay for it. I understand their frustration, though. Bank fees can be high. And then there's the criminal way central banks inflate fiat currencies, robbing such currencies of value to the tune of 2 or 3% a year. But compared to the recent precipitous drop in the value of Bitcoin, that is manageable. Not excusable, mind you, but manageable. But what about the federal government's charge of Bitcoin being a haven for thieves and money launderers? Personally, I think it's hogwash. This was from the Globe and Mail two days ago. Quote, On a hot Florida morning a week ago, a young Quebecer named Pascal Reed showed up at a boutique hotel in Miami's Art Deco district carrying a laptop and an electronic wallet that held $316 U.S. in digital currency. Mr. Reed was expected to meet a man who had purchased bitcoins from him before. The buyer was, in fact, an undercover agent for the U.S. Secret Service which arrested Mr. Reed and charged him with money laundering. 
According to his arrest form, Mr. Reed was told by the undercover agent that the money used to buy his bitcoins came from credit card data stolen in the highly publicized hacking of the Target retail chain, unquote, from the Globe and Mail. Now, let's think about that for a moment. So the money used to buy the coins allegedly came from credit card theft. So weren't there other ways to launder money? Of course there are, or so I'm told. He could have bought gold or silver coins. He could have opened the chain of falafel stands and run the money through them or using fiat currency or any number of other ways. Bitcoin just happened to be his chosen method, allegedly. I understand ice cream parlors were popular by uh, organized crime in Quebec for a while there. <laughs> <laughs> Is that right? Ice cream parlors or chip yep. stands or anything like yep. that? Car washes, if you're a fan of Breaking Bad. So why single out Bitcoin as a currency which needs government control? We're talking about the American government here, so that question should basically answer itself. Control. Bitcoin, although fraught with many problems, the only and only taking up a small percentage of worldwide transactions, if it takes off in popularity and corrects its security problems, it's set to undermine the world's, world's government's abilities to affect economies by manipulating money supplies. There's no doubt in my mind, therefore, that Bitcoin is in for a tough time in the very near future. The government hates competition. To our own federal government set upon regulating Bitcoin, I say, get your own house in order first, please. You print fiat currency via central banks and deliberately devalue your such currency as a matter of policy. And regarding the pseudo-crime of money laundering, and this, by the way, is a topic that I think that you and I might approach in the future, the whole idea of money laundering as a crime. The practice has been around since before Al Capone. And the real crime here is not necessarily money laundering, but the actual theft of the money in the first place. Money laundering is a term which means that some criminal has not cleaned his ill-gotten money by depositing in one of the government's banks or the government-controlled banks, or has not paid taxes on it. That's money laundering. Punish the real crime and leave Bitcoin alone, in my opinion. What do you think, Bob? I'll tell you, Robert, I, I can't see any advantage to this. I don't understand. It sounds like a gambling system almost. And when you said that people like it because it's anonymous... I kind of get that, but I, I was under the impression that anything electronic was always traceable in some way. Is, am, am I mistaken there? Is there some way to, to make this completely anonymous, that you can't even trace back a transaction electronically? Well, it's my opinion that anything done over the Internet is not completely anonymous. Now, mind you, uh, an anonymity to an ISP is not is not capable. Uh, but who uses that computer? Well, there's your anonymity there. Well, because, that's true. That's true, yeah. You know, so there's a degree of it. But, you know, something, me just going down to the Canadian Tire and buying fish and rod with my, my, my fiat currency, I don't have to tell people who I am, why I'm there, or anything like that. They have no record of it, and I can throw away the receipt, and they don't know anything about it. So that's an anonymity for well, it. Well, you never know. They might have security cameras in the store. Well, yes, barring <laughs> that thing, yes, well... <laughs> Anyway, we've got to take a break, and okay. when we come back, we're going to talk a little bit about health care. Back after this. Another? Now, sell up. All right. I'm next. Currency. Yes. The paper appears to have value. Thanks, Billy. What can I get you? 
Do you have anything that doesn't require currency? You mean free? Anybody up for a game? Quarter ball? I'll play. You better ask your mother, Jackie. Come on, Mom, we can use the money. Go on upstairs and do your homework. I'll bring you up some dinner. I'm up for a game. I thought you didn't have any money. He doesn't. Well, sorry, pal. There's nothing in it for me. It's time for us to go. Wait a minute. We might be able to work something out. If you win, I'll pay up. If I win, your business associate has a drink with me. We accept your terms. We do not. We need their currency. What if you lose? I'll have to socialize with him. Would you rather die of starvation? Time for this patient's next injection. Requesting one cytoglobin injection for patient B3, priority blue, seven gamma. One cytoglobin injection. Authorized. Does this patient have a chromoviral infection? No, why? I was told cytoglobin is the standard treatment for that disease. Cytoglobin also prevents arterial aging. Will that be all? You may go. This patient's arteries appear to be healthy at the moment, but daily injections increase life expectancy up to 40%. We prescribe them for all level blue patients. I just saw a boy on level red who's dying. This medicine could save his life. This woman is the chief engineer of an irrigation facility which provides water to half the subcontinent. So her life is more valuable. Keeping her healthy contributes to our survival. Can you say the same for the boy on level red? Who knows what he'll accomplish if he has the chance? If he becomes more valuable to society, his TC will rise, and then he'll receive better treatment. He may not be around long enough. I'm sorry he's sick. But our society is much better off since we began following the allocator's protocols. Some of you are. Yes, indeed, some of us are. And uh, that clip from Voyager expresses a concern that a lot of us have. And um, That was an amazing episode of Voyager, by the way. If you want to see how... Socialized healthcare works. Check that one out. I think I understand how socialized healthcare works. <laughs> the fact that you're homesick and not in a hospital might explain something too. I don't know. Well, I'm not that sick. <laughs> no. Now, the issue with the healthcare system here in Ontario has been a focus on the needs of the community or the society versus the needs of individual patient care. And Freedom Party candidate Andrew Brannan, a nurse by profession and currently running, uh, running in the by-election in Niagara Falls, recently sent a letter to one of the hospitals, his hospital's administrators in response to uh, a submission she made to a website regarding the Milton Hospital expansion. Um, I found that his take on the issue of prioritizing the needs of the community over the needs of the, the patient was particularly compelling, and I thought I'd share that letter with our listeners today. And by the way, that by-election is being held today. Is that right, Bob? Mm-hmm. That's yeah. correct. 
So here's Andrew's letter. Now, it's going to take a little while to read, but I think it's rather compelling and very well written and gets to the point. So, quote, I'm contacting you today with some relative feedback regarding your statement on the Connections website concerning the Milton Hospital expansion. My motivation for contacting you stems from participation in the political process. As you may know, Niagara Falls has been the center of controversy regarding hospitals with decaying infrastructure, high uh, nosocomial uh, infection rates, uh, delays, etc., In the uh, current political fight in Niagara Falls, everybody is fighting over hospital location. There are three population centers in that riding. They're fighting over how many hospitals should exist, big mega complex like Trillium versus updating old sites, etc. And as they fight over all these issues, each one of the establishment party candidates claim to be speaking for the, quote, needs of the community. I notice that needs of the community is the standard for planning, construction, and completion of hospital facilities according to your article. I do not disparage the value of focus groups to determine the planning process. Likewise, I do not deny that a community has an aggregate set of needs that may be different from one community to the next, based on demographics, income levels, etc. But what exactly is the community? other than a group of individuals, each with their own set of needs, values, and preferences that differs from the next. My issue is that individual patient needs are so often denied in the context of planning based on the community. Of course, we perform individualized care as nurses, but the goal of nursing is to provide individualized care. But the system we work in is a system that places the highest priority on the community and so often neglects the variety of individual patient needs. I think the reason that healthcare policy focuses so much on the community is due to the fact that it is the only way to determine the allocation of funding blocks from the government. Since hospitals are, unfortunately, at the mercy of the Ministry of Health for funding, and since they can only get funds, 85% I believe is accurate, from the ministry, instead of through direct patient payment or by pocket or by private insurance, The needs of the community ultimately means that the needs of individuals are sacrificed to the whims, desires, and pressures of those who possess political power. I have observed, continues Andrew, the subordination of patient needs to political pressures in my 11 years of bedside practice at numerous hospitals. I have too many examples to mention, but when the actual individual needs of patients such as elderly folk or Cancer patients with multiple uh, comorbidities come through the ER. They are shoved into a hallway on a decrepit, fetid, med-surge ward. Accordingly, the needs of the community are politically determined to be ER wait times. So when the hospital is pressured to reduce wait times in order to maintain funding, regardless of individual patient needs on the ground, decision makers at hospitals are forced into a situation of pushing patients into hallways in order to meet the arbitrary political mandate of reducing wait times. With no mechanism of earning profits at our hospitals in Ontario, the only way to plan for long-term capital development is to look at historical records and trends, speculative projects about the future, and perform endless planning studies. But we then build a great big capital-intensive facility that so often fail to match up with the needs of the community. The reason is that the needs of the community are fluid, dynamic, and ephemeral. 
the allocation of resources in an accurate and efficient way can only be accomplished when hospitals have the same mechanism as all other industries and services of understanding the nature of their clientele's needs at the ground level in real time. Profit and loss. The ability to accumulate profits in an area of high demand signals the need to invest in a certain service or technology as factors change year to year. Losses in some areas would signal the shrinking of other services. What we seem to have instead of hospitals catering directly to patients' needs is a vast, complex array of political pressure groups, including organizations like the ONA and RNAO and the nursing establishment in general. And they're all united in maintaining the moral obscenity of status quo, top-down, authoritarian, and centrally planned health care. Hence, I am fighting for health care freedom, fighting to allow for some separation between health care and state, and to give the power of the health care purse back to patients where it belongs. Hospitals must be returned to more local ownership and controlled by people who are actually knowing what's going on and not be at the mercy of the Ministry of Health for every darn decision regarding expansion and growth. The ability to have private investment create hospitals and services is working so well everywhere else. Why do we prohibit this in hospitals? Whose interests are being served? And that is from Andrew Brennan, the Freedom Party candidate in Niagara Falls, in a letter he wrote to a hospital administrator. What do you think, Bob? Well, it sounds like economics is, is as important to health care as medicine. And if your economics is sick, so is your health care. Exactly. And, and, and so we've got to make our economics healthy before we can actually have real health. And that's a lesson in health care that a lot of people... Uh, certainly today with our generations today who have been brought up you know a lot of people never knew that you could go to a doctor one time without any public health care system and pay five dollars for a visit to go to the doctor and actually get treated properly a lot of people don't realize that back in 1967 when OHIP first started 85 percent of all Ontarians had adequate private health care insurance 85 percent it was only for that 15 percent who didn't that we instituted this uh, state-run And remember, that fifteen, per- that 15% wasn't, didn't all need the insurance either. A lot of them were the wealthy sure. who can pay their own way. A lot of them were people who didn't get sick, <laughs> you know. So I don't know. It's all this, this, this insurance thing is, is a bit of a racket, too. But nevertheless, you want to have insurance if you can possibly have insurance. But again, you want to rely on that insurance. And, and you know... People talk about public-private insurance. You're taking risks with either one because, you know, it's the old rule, he who pays the piper calls the tune. And not every insurance company is going to give you every single benefit that you want, but you can choose the ones you want, at least within the private, you know, sphere and market. Exactly. So that's um, good luck to Andrew Brannan in Niagara Falls, uh, Freedom Party candidate, and good luck to Aaron Goodwin, who's the Freedom Party candidate in Thornhill today. Mm-hmm as they go to the polls in those two ridings. So when we come back after this uh, bottom-of-the-hour break, Bob, I understand that you've got uh, some bread and circuses to talk about. Um, no bread, just circuses. <laughs> Sounds like London. <laughs> we'll be back right you after this. Requesting one cytoglobin injection for patient R12. Treatment denied. I order you to medicate me now. Ordinarily, I would. But if the allocator says no... 
this some sort of revenge? Not revenge. Leverage. I want enough cytoglobin to cure every infected patient on this level. We don't have an adequate supply. There's plenty on level blue. Where it's being used to prevent arterial aging. Those patients will survive without it. But a dozen people on this level won't. I will not let them die. Are we having a problem here? Isaac. Finally. I'm sorry. I had to tell him. What are you waiting for? Give me the cytoglobin. I don't think I can. What are you saying? Cytoglobin isn't authorized for level red patients. Isaac! I don't want to break the rules. I made the rules! Then you should be pleased I hold them in such high regard. Don't tell me you're allied with this defective hologram. No. But he has given me insight into some of the intricacies of our system. For example, did you know if I don't request enough resources for level blue this month, I won't get what I need next month. What are you talking about? You know, Doctor, one way to increase your allocation of resources on Level Blue would be to increase the number of patients. I know at least a dozen people who should be treated for arterial aging. Saving their lives would be just a side effect. Hmm. Perhaps we should have them transferred to Level Blue? If you're looking for a second opinion, I concur. Well, Jellic, what do you think? It's absurd. We'd have to transfer you to level blue as well. You'd get your cytoglobin. antiquity to bring you a recreation of the second fall of mighty Carthage on the barren plain of Zarma there stood the invincible armies of the barbarian Hannibal ferocious mercenaries and warriors from all brute nations bent on merciless destruction, conquest. Your emperor is pleased to give you the Barbarian Horde! Well, that was from uh, the movie Gladiator, which was a terrific movie, by the way. And, of course, that speaks to the theme of the second half of our show today. I recently found myself in the center of a local controversy over the past week, even during my convalescence here, over the proposed new performing arts center we've heard about, and then over the city's purchase of the old normal school that just came up on Elmwood uh, Street there the other day. And, of course, uh, all this in the backdrop of the Budweiser Center. And I thought I'd begin this section with a quote from an old essay that Ayn Rand had written called Check Your Premises, The Monument Builders. 
And I have to say, Robert, <laughs> in the context of monument building, the phrase, check your premises, takes on a different meaning, doesn't it? It's a literal one. Check mm. your premises, your building. <laughs> oh, I, I get what you're saying, yeah. Okay. Because, of course, she meant she was talking about socialism. But, man, if you, if you look at it this way, you can take it literally. And she wrote this. She said, Rome fell, bankrupted by statist controls and taxation while its emperors were building coliseums. Louis XIV of France taxed his people into a state of indigence while he built the Palace of Versailles for his contemporary monarchs to envy and for modern tourists to visit. The marble-lined Moscow subway built by the unpaid quote-unquote volunteer labor of Russian workers, including women, is a public monument, and so is the Tsarist-like luxury of or luxury of the champagne and caviar receptions at the Soviet embassies, which is needed while the people stand in line for inadequate food rations to, quote, maintain the prestige of the Soviet Union. One may see in certain biblical movies a graphic image of the meaning of public monument building, the building of the pyramids, hordes of starved, ragged, emaciated men straining the last effort of their inadequate muscles at the inhuman task of pulling the ropes that drag large chunks of stone, straining like tortured beasts of burden under the whips of overseers, collapsing on the job and dying in the desert sands, that a dead pharaoh might lie in an imposingly senseless structure and thus gain eternal prestige in the eyes of the unborn of future generations. Temples and palaces are the only monuments left of mankind's earliest civilizations. They were created by the same means and at the same price, a price not justified by the fact that primitive peoples undoubtedly believed, while dying of starvation and exhaustion, that the prestige of their tribe, their rulers or their gods, was of value to them somehow, end quote. And, of course, it's deja vu over and over and over again with all of these latest monuments we're building. Nothing's changed except our time, really. Well, just consider the Sochi Olympics as well, Bob. $50 billion being funded by the Russian government when people there are living in uh, quite deplorable, uh, deplorable conditions. Precisely, Robert, and that was even brought up in conversation between myself and Andy Utman on, on CJBK last week. But there's a couple of projects on the go here, actually three in total that I want to take a look at. Um, which one shall we start with? You want to start with the normal building? Well, sure, that sounds normal. Okay. <laughs> this one just came up just yesterday, or the past couple days. And apparently the city has purchased the normal building, um, which of course is in the heart of Wortley Village, and, and everyone knows it's been there for quite a while. The purchase was, now these are just the, the rough facts, and, and of course they don't have all the facts, so we're, we're dealing with what they do know up to this point. Um, they spent a $1.7 million on purchasing the building from the province. $9 million will be required in repairs. The province recently renovated the outside of the building, um, and yet a private appraiser of the building, now, by the way, when they renovated, they spent millions on it, and yet a private appraiser of the building with land and everything included, has put it at around $900,000. Now, Steve Garrison over at BK was saying that, you know, you're looking at carrying costs of a million dollars, you know, on a $10.9 million investment. Apparently the YMCA is supposed to lease the premises for $400,000 a year. Again, none, none of this is written in stone yet. And then they're apparently going to add capital costs, still unspecified. 
And apparently you can't build anything on that site due to a heritage designation by the province. And city planner John Fleming apparently had said that if the city hadn't bought the property, nothing could have been built on it. It would have been a green space forever, which suggests to me, well, then why did you even bother buying it? Why not just leave it there <laughs> in the hands of the, of the provincial government, right? Mm-hmm. If, you, if that's what it's about. Uh, the building may have asbestos problems. They say it's going to be paid off in 11 years, uh, Joe Fontana, Denise Brown, depending on how much the Y puts in for capital costs. Which they don't know yet. Which they don't know. So how can they make that conclusion? Well, they're making wild guesses. Yep. And apparently they can still bail out of this deal in March, which is just a few weeks ago, but I guess after that they can't. I'm not sure what, what all this is about. A few weeks away, you mean. But, yes. And what was interesting... Was it a caller called in on the show and, and said something about me that I didn't even know I had said? He, he said, quote, Bob Metz has said it many times. It's not their money. Therefore, the responsibility doesn't seem to be there, nor does the onus or accountability. And, uh, you know, if you're a business owner, you have to treat those funds differently because you have a different attitude. And that's part of the problem with, with municipalities investing in things like this. It's not their money. They, have, they, they, they literally don't have an interest. And money doesn't do its work unless there's a legitimate interest behind it, where someone's, it's their money, their investment, their risk, and that's what makes the money work. As soon as you take away those elements, money doesn't do its job anymore. In fact, it might do a lot of harm. And so that's just one of the situations. Now let's look at the other uh, upcoming white elephant that we'll be dealing with. You know, this is amazing, too. Again, in the same light of the Roman Empire, all this is going on, all this profligate spending, while the economy is in one of its worst situations that anyone has experienced in recent history. I don't know if you've just recently heard, Bob, but a hospital bed manufacturing plant here in London just announced its closure, 70 jobs gone, and this is just on the heels of the announcement that we're going to get this glorious, or perhaps get, this glorious performing arts center. You got it. And that's what's going to happen. Isn't that supposed to attract business? <laughs> well, there's another myth. Now, let's look at this other issue. Now, this is from the London Free Press, uh, Monday, February 10th, by Jane Sims. And she's talking about uh, this, this celebration center that we're going to, that they're proposing, that the mayor's proposing. Quote, city politicians got their first look Monday at an ambitious $164 million plan to build a performing arts center. So some councillors are eager to get the ball rolling uh, on a project described as a mini Central Park. Others want more answers. Before there can be the $164 million center, the city and project boosters have to be singing from the same songbook. They started humming a few bars together Monday when City Council's Investment and Economic Prosperity Committee listened to the proposal from Music London and Grand Theatre. Now, these are hardly business interests, if you ask me. So far, it just like sounds like government and government and government and government. Two weeks from now, when the, gov- when the committee meets again, it will hear from city staff about building a business plan with a city-selected consultant before committing another 75000 necessary to start the ball rolling. Though so the new proposal linking the once dueling cultural entities and a substantial private investment holds much promise, the committee wants to take a cautious approach before jumping on the bandwagon. Uh, you know, you hear this all the time. There were lots of questions, and they're all talking about partners. No, no clear answers. But the group said the proposal, which also includes an expanded grand theater and two condo towers, is an opportunity 
that needs to be seized. Remember that term. That's very important, opportunity. Despite a tough economic environment and many other high-cost commitments. So in other words, they're admitting that we're having a rough time. We've got a lot of money already that's committed, but we're going to go ahead with this anyway. So the Performing Arts Plan uh, would replace the demolished Centennial Hall and adjacent London Life parking lot, 1,400-seat main hall, 400-seat recital center, cost $50 million, and they go through all the costs. Very, very interesting. But here's a breakdown of the $164 million bucks. You got a pencil and paper there, Robert? Okay, shoot. Okay, here's what they're telling you. $30 million is coming from the Ontario and federal governments. $30 million. Mm-hmm. That's taxes. $16.7 million coming from London taxpayers. That's taxes. $3.5 million is coming from something called community support. Now, whether that community support is voluntary or whether it's uh, some other way of taxing us or, or, you know, maybe it's fees, I don't know, they're not clear, but that's $3.5 million. Then $100 million, private partner. Then $9 million, parking partner. I don't know what parking partner means, but why didn't they say private? Is this the city, too? I don't know. And then $4.8 million sale of land for development. Now, a lot of those don't even seem clear just on, on the face of it. So if you look at the whole expenditure list of the $164 million, at best only $109 million, as far as we know, is perhaps private money. It's not clear what the $3.5 million community support is. I wish they would be forced to tell us. The $4.8 million sale of land for development is also kind of unclear on its face. If this represents a sale of land to the Celebration Center, then wouldn't that be part of the cost of the project and not a source of funding? That doesn't make sense to me. It sounds like they're going to give them $4.8 million of land, uh, which is now currently occupied by the Convention Center. That's, to me, uh, well, that's taxpayer tax. money again. That's again. taxpayer money again. You got it. And then... And then, of course, there's a $16.7 million, which is the only figure that's being touted by the city, because that's coming from the municipal tax base. But then there's a $30 million in federal and provincial taxes, which also comes from us. Mm-hmm. Now, pull out the $16 million city, city share, and you won't get the $30 million provincial-federal share. And that, Robert, is, quote, the opportunity that needs to be seized, end quote, as was so vaguely put in the free press. Why don't they just come out and say so? Mostly because that would reveal that our elected representatives are really our misrepresentatives. They will spend our money in order to get more of our money. To spend. Yes. Not to give it back to us, by the way, but to spend it. That's exactly right. And that's the opportunity that they're talking about. That's, That's quite a shell game. That's a shell it's, game. Well, it's, you know, to me, it's another chance to steal, like legally, uh, without going to jail. And let's face it, you don't get many opportunities like that. Here's an opportunity. <laughs> don't spend the $16.7 million so that we can save $30 million from the Ontario and federal government. That's $46.7 million we can save. What an opportunity. Well, it's, it's just outrageous all, all the way around. And... Um, you know, it's the age-old shell, shell game of federal, provincial, municipal spending, and it's a lose-lose-lose proposition for taxpayers. You know, I don't have one foot in Canada and another foot in Ontario and another one in London. As individuals, we do not have separate political identities based on who we pay taxes to. 
And all of this money is forced spending, non-productive spending. How do we know this? Because, because it's forced. You know, value and wealth come from freedom and never from slavery, whether it's physical or economic. And if it's such a great investment, which is a tremendous misuse of the term, by the way, then why does anybody need tax dollars? You know, well, you know, check it out. Over a third of the financing is taxes. And remember, so far all we're hearing is capital costs, operating costs. Oh, my goodness, they're not even talking about that. That's going to be another killer, and that's another, quote, opportunity, if you know what I mean. And not only that, I mean, what project here in London has ever come in at or under budget? I can't think of any. You can always tack on 25 to 50% when all is said and done. So instead of $164 million, you're looking at $200 million. You Close got to it. a quarter of a billion dollars for this boondoggle. It, it, it's just it's, it's nightmarish in its, in its implications. If it were all private money, it would be wonderful. But the fact that it isn't is already a death knell for it, at least in terms of, of uh, our <laughs> participation. Well, that's now, the thing, Bob. I mean, people might think that when we decry these kinds of projects, we're actually, oh, you're not a patron of the arts, you wouldn't understand. Well, no, yes, I am a patron of the arts. I've been to the Grand, I've been to McManus, I've been to when, the old palace. I've seen these plays. I enjoy the arts, and I think that there's a, a great... Uh, purpose for them in our in our society and in our community uh, as individuals we love watching these things but if you have to take our money and if it's not going to be financially possible to do it then perhaps we don't need such a thing in a, in a city of 350,000 people let's drive to Stratford, Stratford which um, which which drives their which takes their customers from Toronto let's go to Toronto i mean you there's probably a threshold of population that can support a self-sustaining uh, theatrical uh, performing arts uh, business. And I don't think we're there yet. No, you're correct. And the interesting thing about this whole phenomenon is that Londoners in general seem to be aware of everything you and I are saying and are on side on this one. And if you listen to the talk shows, it's it's essentially 100% against. Yes, the one person on Andy Udman who was uh, in favor of it um, didn't pay taxes. Oh, I'm a renter. I don't no, pay taxes. No, I didn't even take him seriously. <laughs> he was just, I think he was just pulling everybody. I wonder leg. if it was sarcasm, yeah. Yeah. But, you know, listening to that show, one caller called in, and that was Jeff Lang, one of the supporters, or one of the promoters, and he said he's disappointed with the callers. Jeff Lang, and didn't he, he run for the Conservative Party at one time? I think so. I think and so. he said it was the same when the J- JLC was proposed. And he says, quote, we don't have to strive for mediocrity, he says, in a completely moral vacuum. At least the city isn't going to be sticking its nose into this one too much. It's primarily private enterprise, he said. That's what gets him excited. Uh, primarily private enterprise. You hear the, <laughs> the figures we just read? Yeah. You know, and at the Budweiser, he says, 60 million people have been exposed to our city. We've had the best skating championship that you ever put on. That's something to be proud of, he says. Why can't people smile about these things? Oh, well, you don't smile a lot when you're starving and you can't pay your taxes. Well, you know, Bob, we're going to have to take a little break here. I'm getting the cue from Ed, which yep. you can't see because you're on the telephone. That's but, correct. But Ed's here giving me the, the, the evil eye to, to go for a little break and then come back. Why well, don't you tell us about the JLC when we come back? That's what we're going to do. Okay, back after this. <laughs> Good 
Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Live and direct from City Arena and in color, we bring you Name the Winner, brought to you tonight by your Jupiter 8 dealers from coast to coast. And first tonight, ladies and gentlemen, a surprise extra. In the far corner, a pair of highly aggressive barbarians. Strong, intelligent, with strange ways, and I'm sure full of a lot of surprises. And facing them, two favorites here from previous encounters, Achilles and Flavius. your strategy in action. Let the combat commence. It's going to be a long day. Don't you just love this? And all for our own private pleasure. So, you know, tell us about the JLC, Bob. Yeah, you know, when it all comes down to it, all this kind of forced tax spending, unlike public purpose spending, eventually is done for some private interest of someone, and that's something we have to keep in mind and never lose track of. But, you know, again, back to Jess Lang, he pointed out how all the same questions were put forth when the JLC was built. And he's point out, well, you know, Global Spectrum isn't going to put its money into something that's going to lose. Well, yeah, not for them, but for us, we're going to lose. And, you know, he keeps talking about how it's all private money. Well, that's not really the case. And, and even worse is the idea that there are so many people, including uh, a number of people in the radio industry that I heard talking, like, you know, the bud is a success. Oh, that's right. I just called it the JLC, didn't I? <laughs> I meant <laughs> well, the it's the same thing, no, because it was promoted as the JLC, and that's how yeah. it came into being, of course. But, you know, and again, even when that was happening, maybe I was a major opposition at the time. It was us, the same groups. And if you want to listen in on our archive on uh, Just Right, you can listen in to the Left, Right, and Center episodes where mm-hmm. we talked about this at the time that the issue is being proposed. You can hear all these people saying the same thing. That's why this is all so fresh in my mind. I have all these recordings. Yep. I can hear what was said back then. You can hear what was said back then. So, you know, that's the whole situation. Now, if you want to hear the real facts on this, the best place to go is to our own show, Just Right and former London controller Orlando Zampronia said it all back on November 1st on our show. And uh, anyone wants to check that out, they can go online at you know, www.justrightmedia.org and check out show number 274, which was broadcast on November 1st, 2012. I think I videotaped that too, didn't I? Yeah, it's on, you're right. So it's, it's probably on our on YouTube, YouTube channel as well, as well yeah. Right. And here is a brief summary of Oz's comments on the so-called successful Budweiser Center. And the first thing he told us, and I remember this clearly, he said he gets literally angry when people say it's, quote, making money. First of all, he says people are not using the JLC, yet they are pay- paying huge sums of money to support the borrowings that went on for that. 
Or in other words, he's saying the facility is underused and cannot pay for itself. So who pays and where does the money go? Well, according to Orlando, it, it works like this. First of all, he says the deal struck with the operators allows them to pay based on net profits. That means they can write off just about anything. Second, the city paid for the building and the land, and the taxpayer has been paying something like $2.5 million a year in taxes and getting a return of about $150,000 to $200,000 a year back. And that, he said, it was in a good year. Think about that. What kind of return is that? Mm-hmm. And that's just a single year we're looking at. Next, the city leased the land on which the building is built. Budweiser, Budweiser pays no city tax. The city used to earn about $300,000 a year from revenues from that lot when it was just a parking lot. Think about that. They made 300000 bucks a year when it was empty in a parking lot. Now they're bragging about a return of 150 to 200000 against a, an expenditure of $2.5 million. Does that make sense? Does it ever? And then here's the clincher. And I heard so many people calling in and saying, well, we have to have these facilities here. We want to attract money here. We don't want our money to leave the, leave the city. Well, guess what? It's exactly the opposite. You know, for those who believe the facilities like this in the community attract money here, the opposite is true. Most of the money, as Orlando said, earned at the Budweiser leaves the city and doesn't stay here. Forty to $60 million per year goes to the performers and acts that perform at the Bud. And they mostly come from outside Canada, and that money goes to wherever they live and they work. I think so, we, were, we were just host to Elton John, or he's just slated to come here at the Budweiser. Do you think right. Elton John and his entourage of perhaps hundreds of people are going to take all that millions of dollars and stay here, buy houses, go to the restaurant? No, they're not. They're taking it back to Britain. <laughs> it's an absurdity. And, you know, so his conclusion, if I recall on the show, and you can all listen to this, Hear it yourself. He said, quote, the Budweiser Center is one terrible mess. We'll just have to keep paying for it until we stop paying for it. Now, I was saying some of these very same facts on the air on CJBK the other day, and at the same time on the line was, um, was Bud Polehill. And Bud Polehill said, well, I can't say, I have to contest those, you know, those statistics and those facts. But I since that day gotten more more commentary from people that apparently I understated some of those uh, those expenses and actually they're higher and the revenues are worse so some people are saying that the that the center loses over 3 million a year so again where where do all of these you know you can't confuse what looks like a great act and Elton John playing or having a great sporting event with the money that's being coerced to pay for making these things possible. And that's a price we pay forever. We will not pay off the JLC in my lifetime or yours, Robert. No. I mean, by that I mean, uh, this has got to be clear, we will pay it off in terms of taxpayers paying it off. But the way they sell it as a moneymaker, it is not. It will never earn the money, ever, 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 to pay back the investment that has been coerced out of the community. And for that reason, the community is worse off. 
There's a, a phrase in financial circles called lost opportunity as well. In other words, if you um, invest in one thing or don't invest in a thing, um, the lost opportunities elsewhere aren't um, taken into account. Uh, it goes back to Bastiat's, that which is seen, that which is unseen. Um, what could all of our Londoners have done with all of that money had it been left to them to decide where to spend it here in the community? Those opportunities are lost. Exactly. And not only that, you know, everybody talks, well, it's a great vision. Well, it's your vision. It's not my vision. And when, if it's your vision, spend your money. When you take my money to spend on your vision, then, just as you said, Robert, my vision is lost. Well, we're up at the uh, top of the hour, Bob. Do you want to take us out of here? Well, you know, I really should end the show today with an apology of my own because I didn't mean to make anyone sadder. Budweiser. (laughs) (laughs) So let's go. Join us again next week when we'll continue our journey in the right direction. Until then, be right, stay right, do right, act right, think right, and be right back here. See you then. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be alright. But I know you're thinking, you're thinking, we've had a lot of observation comedy tonight, Len. Where are the jokes? So, uh, yeah, all right, a guy goes to the doctor, he's got a stick of celery in one ear, a banana in the other ear, and a pineapple up his nose. He says, doctor, what's the matter with me? The doctor said, it's obvious, you're not eating properly. <laughs>